Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you've downloaded the app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. You could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country. And we have a couple of guests on the show today. We're uh, both phone-in calls this morning. I'd also like to tell you that tomorrow on the show, we have a couple of guests that will be on as well. And uh, one of those people will be Kevin Sandy. He's going to be talking to us about the history of lacrosse. What do you really know about lacrosse? Do you think it's just a sport? Do you think it's just a game? It is much more, and it dates back to pre-Canada, and it dates to its original source, and that source is the Six Nations people. We're going to tell you all about that and also about the upcoming North American Indigenous Games that are happening this year. Tomorrow, also on this show, we have an author. Uh, from uh, The book is about her life story, A Deep Water Dream, Gretchen Rodid, and she will be uh, talking about her life as a physician embedded, I might say, in a Cree community in northern Ontario. It's a very fascinating book. I've had the opportunity to read it. But I, right now, I would like to welcome Carol Ann Hilton to the show. She is calling from out in the Okanagan Valley, and uh, she is, just so you have a little bit of background about this woman, she's the founder and CEO of the Indigenomics Institute. What is that, you might say? Well... She started it uh, about a year and a half ago, but Carol Ann is the CEO and founder, as I said, of the Indigenous Institute. She is also recognized as a First Nations business leader and advisor. She is uh, from the Nuchanulf Nation, and that is on Vancouver Island, from the Husqvarnet Nation on Vancouver Island. She serves as the Canadian Economic Growth Council and an advisor to Minister Morneau. She is the BC Emerging Economic Task Force as an advisor to Minister of Jobs, Trades and Technology, as well as on the BC Indigenous Business and Investment Council. I could go on, but let's suffice it to say that Caroline's work has been recognized most recently with the National Excellence in Aboriginal Relations Award from the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Carol, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to be here. So, you know, you've started, uh, the word itself, Indigenomics Institute, uh, it conjures up several things in mind, but what, what did you, what, why did you want to form a, an institute with, with, with those words in mind? For sure. So I had originally started social media and was a reluctant um, subscriber. I really avoided Facebook and all things social media. (laughs) And I had heard from a colleague of mine of this thing called Twitter. um, And she was able to relate to me that you were able to create space and threads of content um, and really focus on those areas. And I established my own Twitter account. And what I was most interested in um, was Indigenous economy and growth of Indigenous business. Um, what started from that is the kind of well-known and well-used Twitter handle of Indigenomics. And it really was just um, putting a word together to be able to reflect this growing content in a way to begin to pay attention to um, the growing size of the Indigenous economy 
And essentially, it really bloomed from just the hashtag into a recognizable word now within uh, Canadian consciousness and a way to be able to facilitate economic reconciliation within this country. So why focus on the Indigenous economy? Can you tell me what led you to that specifically? Can you take us back a little bit about terms in terms of what, what led you down this path of even getting into the idea or getting into the world of economics? Uh, for sure. So in my work as an Indigenous economic advisor, what I saw was that there was this Um, easily placed perception of Indigenous peoples as um, a special interest group. Mm. And what I saw was that while the numbers and the metrics were reflecting growth in the Indigenous economy, there was not actual recognition within mainstream government that there is an entity, there's this thing called the Indigenous economy. It can be measured, it can be um, supported, nurtured, and grown. And what became important to me was increasing the the visibility of the growth of the Indigenous economy, largely because um, the concept of the Institute is to facilitate Um, to support the facilitation of Canadian consciousness of moving away from seeing Indigenous peoples as a burden on the fiscal system, which is a common narrative and perception, to shift that to a more positive one of seeing Indigenous peoples as economic powerhouses. And it's only now in the most recent years that the initial metrics are there to support that number and to support the concept of the evolution of the Indigenous economy in Canada. That to me sounds like a very large task. Um, and I say that because of, of some of the things you just mentioned. The, the idea that Indigenous people are a burden on society, that they're a burden on the taxpayer, when in fact, you know, we could, we could go down the road of, of treaties and, and the obligations of, of, of the, 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 the federal government and, and what those treaties mean and why this isn't uh, money that is coming out of the taxpayer's uh, pocket that, that goes to Indigenous people. It's, it's part of their, their treaty obligations, that, and that's why they have the natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm sure you're you're familiar with that. Um, so, you know, one of the other things that you talk about is turning that economy that you say is measurable uh, from, I believe, about a $32 billion uh, number into about $100 billion into, into about, in about five years. That seems like a very quick turnaround. Um, how, do you, how do you think that can be accomplished? If we look to some recent examples of Indigenous economic research, there was a collective report out of the Atlantic region that identified the annual Indigenous economic impact between the um, group of Atlantic provinces, the annual impact to be about $1.2 billion, and that's probably grown in the last couple of years. Um, There was also a recent Indigenous economic research report over the last couple months out of Manitoba that identified, I think, around $9.2 billion annual um, Indigenous contribution to the regional GDP. From my perspective, I could see that if there was a series of benchmark numbers that were able to support 
what is the size of the regional indigenous economies, what we would see is actually something very close to 100 billion. Then if we turn to the 2016 TD economic report that identified the size of the indigenous economy at the time to be around 32 billion, growing from 10, 12, 16 to 32. What you see is that escalated um, hockey stick growth potential. So what the Institute is looking at is to be able to look at what does $68 billion in economic transactions look like um, within the economic environment and to be supported and facilitated and nurtured growth over this time period. If you look at the $100 billion, it's really a marker. Um, it's a forward-pacing um, target that in reality would be a comparative ratio between the size of the indigenous population, 100 billion in comparison to the size of the national uh, GDP. Uh, um, Carol, so when I hear those numbers and when I hear the time frame that you're, re you're referring to or that, that's referred to with this, this growth, um, you know, something, of course, the, the, the climate is a, is a big issue these days. And when I when I when I th see that number and trans changing over such a period a short period of time, I think of same old business tactics being used. Um, is there any thought, or have you put any thought into into the relationship of, of how indigenous and non-indigenous, especially with indigenous many people in the indigenous world, caring about the environment, caring about Mother Earth, and wanting to protect Mother Earth, and and how that rolls into things in terms of doing business differently. For sure. And I think that this is really a time of not business as usual, that the potential impact of Indigenous economic exclusion, 100 billion is a insertion into Canadian consciousness that the first 150 years of Canada as a structure and as an entity, the founding um, years of Canada was entirely shaped by Indigenous economic exclusion. Now there's an opportunity um, over the next 150 years for what is the potential for Indigenous economic inclusion. And it's really a $100 billion marker that now, okay, what does inclusion look like and what are the activities that support Indigenous economic inclusion? Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Report, specifically Call to Action 92, speaks to um, the role and leadership of corporations um, in terms of free prior and informed consent. There is nothing I see that is business as usual. Now it's Indigenous leadership establishing the legal space and the economic space for inclusion today. Hmm. In the time that you've been working on this, what has what has jumped out at you in terms of either surprises or gaps that are missing in terms of being able to move forward in this in this way? What is important to me in my work through the Indigenomics Institute is to have a positive narrative. What I'm looking at is forming what is called the Indigenomics Economic Mix. 
a set of 12 levers to support um, Indigenous economic growth. So some of those can include um, entrepreneurship, trade, uh, infrastructure, equity, capital, commerce. Um, All of those as examples to demonstrate positive pathways for both inclusion, new action, leadership, and a place for a belief that a $100 billion Indigenous economy is both possible and important and essential to Canada's future. And, and that's wonderful. What, what specifically have you found in, in dealings or in talks with non-Indigenous organizations? Um, are, are there still some of those stereotypical views to, to break down? Are there still, are, are, is the business world more informed than the general public on Indigenous people and issues? I don't think that those are necessarily markers of um, levels of being informed. We are where we're at. We have um, tragic cases of high um, examples of racism. Um, across this country um, that are still being demonstrated. But we also have this thread of content every single day that speaks to Indigenous legal and economic empowerment. And that's really where my focus is, is that we can't stay with the ones who don't understand. We need to be able to work with the ones who are saying, how can I help? What is my part in this? And where is my leadership? What is it that I need to understand? Um, about my internal beliefs, about my response to that, and my ability to participate today. Mm. Um, something I've read about the Indigenous Workers Report of 2016 suggested 85% of businesses in Canada had not engaged with First Nations, uh, any First Nations communities, in any way. Was that a surprising uh, statistics for you? For you? And, and what does that mean for the potential of moving forward in the future? Um, no, that was not, uh, that was an Indigenous Works report, and no, that wasn't surprising. I think it was a number that needed to be brought into visibility mm. and still needs to be brought into Canadian um, small, medium-sized business and industry corporate uh, businesses to understand the significance of that number that 85% of all mainstream businesses are not engaged in any way, shape or form um, with Indigenous communities. And I think it speaks to a huge opportunity in terms of what does and how can engagement look like in 2019. The other, the other thing, of course, is there's a, a specific uh, and, and a direct relationship with First Nations and the federal government and, and governments ac- across the country at political at the uh, provincial level as well. What is the role uh, that you think that government needs to take in this, in, t- in terms of getting that relationship and, and getting this, this kind of uh, this economy moving forward in a positive way? For sure. A lot of my message um, to levels of government is that the growth of the Indigenous economy cannot exist solely within um, the existing programs and services. It needs to be reflected in investment into the economy and identifying avenues um, that actually um, create a facilitated pathway for growth and inclusion. A clear example of that um, is clean energy. 
I think I had seen a statistic that um, identified up to two-thirds of 600 nations across Canada all had uh, clean energy projects, which really speaks to um, nations' roles within uh, leadership, um, values around what is important in terms of land-based resource management, and the ability to participate in that sector specifically. Um, when you begin to look at some of those numbers, what is seen is that getting out of the way becomes important action that um, the ability for government to see that short-term or long-term funding programs actually needs to be understood in terms of economic growth. And that's really where um, I see the government's needing to focus is what are the Indigenous economic inclusion impacts and how is that supported through um, the relationships to nations specifically? So, um, the other thing in it that you mentioned earlier is entrepreneurship. And we all know that, um, that entrepreneurship is big in, in Indigenous peoples' uh, world. Um, it seems that there's, a, 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 I think, an, an almost an unprecedented amount of people. I'm always hearing about Indigenous people wanting to become their own boss, wanting to have their own business. How does this roll into your vision as it moves forward? For sure. Uh, indigenous entrepreneurship needs to be one of the part of the uh, economic mix. There was a Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business report that identified in 2016 that there was 43,000 um, Indigenous entrepreneurs identified. Um, when you look at that number, it really leaves the possibility of in how many years will the next measurement allow that possibility of what does 100,000 Indigenous entrepreneurs look like? What's the capital requirement for that? Mm. Um, indigenous entrepreneurship, I see, is becoming visible um, answer internally from the nation's and community's perspective that um, that's a way to be able to develop some sense of um, independence and prosperity um, without the reliance as much on the community itself and the ability to shape and form family belief systems outside of existing poverty within the community really becomes um, very attractive to realize that there is potential outside of kind of the underfunding relationships and the experience of poverty within the communities overall. Okay, um, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit, and, and you, you, you talked about it a little bit earlier, going back to the, the building the economy, and, and I'm just wondering, how does the relationship uh, between business and understanding the world of, of Indigenous people, and that goes back to the education of bringing people up to speed in terms of uh, getting them on board, getting them uh, uh, acquainted, and, and and giving them understanding in the non-indigenous world of the of indigenous the, the indigenous world and business and interpretation, and being able to move forward quickly because business always wants to take action and move forward and get things rolling because uh, it costs money. 
uh, to delay and, and stand still. So how, do, how does that work? How do you see that blending together and, and being able to work together? I think the concept of indigenomics is the uh, modern indigenous economic response. It's important to understand that we came with entire economic systems and ways of being and relationships and protocols. Um, we understood business. In Canada itself is based on the highways of the trade systems of our people. And when we are able to realize um, that we come with capacity, that our worldview has an integral um, component of how we're successful in business, um, it becomes a positive pathway that um, we can't always see uh, Indigenous business as just high conflict of you no know, development can't happen here, that the ability to see behind the messaging that an Indigenous legal and governance framework that is based on the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the one clause of we have a right to freely pursue um, we have the right to develop our economies. We have the right to continue as people. Those become really important of um, support, the pathway of supporting um, Indigenous inclusion, decision-making at the community level, and the ability to see business as a positive platform for nation-building and community development. Mm. Uh, Carol, great spot for take a, for us to take a pause. Please stay on the line, and please, uh, listeners, stay, don't go away. We will be right back after this pause with more from Carol Ann Hilton right after this. Welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. On the line with us from uh, out in British Columbia, we have Carol Ann Hilton. She's the founder and CEO of the Indigenomics Institute, and uh, the indigenous indigenous pardon me the indigenomics institute supports the development and growth of the indigenous economy with a focus on social economic and cultural well-being carol thanks for joining us today just before we get back into it i would just want to remind our listeners that coming up later on in the hour we have uh, caroline o'neill in our ottawa studio she's going to be speaking with scott jones and he is the head of the center, the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity. That sounds like a very interesting uh, interview indeed. Getting back to Carol Ann Hilton and uh, Indigenomics Institute. Uh, Carol, I wanted to ask you about the other side of things, if I can. We've been talking about the business and the econo- economics and, and the need to uh, get uh, non-Indigenous business and Canadian government on side to start looking at Indigenous business and people not as a burden but as uh, as as a, 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 a people that can add to the Canadian economy or the economy at large. But I'm also wondering, given um, as you mentioned earlier, truth and reconciliation, we know that that Indigenous people in Canada have not had a fair deal, and there's been a lot of uh, baggage that has been carried forward from residential school from. Uh, you know, the 60s scoop, there's a lot of, of issues that continue to unfortunately come forward through bloodline, through, uh, through uh, 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 um, you know, that, that, whole, that whole thing of, of being uh, treated poorly. 
So I'm just wondering what your take is on that. What do, what do Indigenous people need to do from, from your perspective in terms of getting on board with this? That's a great question. What I see as important is this concept of how we have experienced economic displacement. Mm. Um, that economic displacement has been followed with economic regression. When we can, as a country, address the conditions of economic regression, I think that is foundational to this concept of Indigenous economic growth. I like the idea of economic freedom. So when our Indigenous um, economic worldview and systems were devalued, what is important today is that the indigenous worldview brings with it that's already embedded within languages and stories and responsibility for place the ability to understand economic freedom outside existing negative numbers um, and statistics of marginalization and the experience of colonization the numbers speak for themselves in terms of the common perception of indigenous peoples, you know, of not finishing high school or the highest diabetes or the highest suicide rates, that is in itself an experience of economic unfreedom. The ability to understand how we can value our own economic systems and our own um, worldview and how that translates into managing, um, managing resources and managing place that is a return to responsibility that had been removed from Indigenous peoples over time. So that lack of responsibility isn't internally based, it's externalized and now experienced as poverty. So the ability to revalue Indigenous economic systems is really what is important to be able to understand and create the space for and that is really what the foundation of indigenomics is is a collective response to the economic legacy of exclusion mm. Mm. and so to that end who are you speaking with who are you talking with uh, from both sides in terms of um, whether it be the assembly of first nations or uh, chiefs communities and businesses, how, how who who are you who are you who uh, addressing these these things with? For sure. So on December sixth, two thousand nineteen, the Indigenomics Institute, in partnership with four national um, Indigenous business organizations, the National Aboriginal Capital Corporation, National Aboriginal Trust Officers. First Nations Major Project, Equity Project Coalition and the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business unleashed the $100 billion Indigenous Economic Agenda at the Assembly of First Nations Special Chiefs meeting. What was important in that and in the work that I do um, in frequently public speaking across this country to government, nations, organizations, industry, I always end uh, my talks with who wants to play Indigenomics. And it's been a very powerful construct because Indigenomics has been neutral. It doesn't have political or legal baggage. And just the sentence itself to end 
a talk with of who wants to play indigenomics, I'm constantly getting requests of how can I help? What does this mean? What am I supposed to do? Mm. Um, where can, what does this actually look like? And that's really um, what is important to me is that kind of idea of who's ready to play indigenomics, who's ready for um, what does procurement look like within a company's value chain? What mm. does procurement look like within the supply chain of this country? Um, what does the capitalization of the indigenous economy look like? Those are really the questions that the Institute is focusing on um, and supporting who's ready to engage in the leadership of those conversations. Mm. Fascinating. Um, so uh, you, that was, I guess, in December of 2018, is that what you said? I think you said December of, of 2019. 2019, this past December. Okay. Um, so, um, as you as you see going forward, then what do you what do you want to try and accomplish, perhaps in the next uh, six months to 12 months? Uh, for sure. So the institute is hosting the inaugural National Indigenomics. Uh, $100 billion Indigenous Economy Conference, um, June 24th to 26th in Richmond. Mm -hmm. That is a convening on the Indigenomics economic mix, so the 12 levers to support the growth of the Indigenous economy. Following that is the inaugural Indigenomics Economic Council. So it's a series of mainstream economists that will be shaping the narrative around the 100 billion and the metrics that support that. Um, I'm super excited. For example, Scotia Bank is interested um, in having their economist on there, Bad City, uh, Royal Bank, a series of um, kind of high profile um, economists all looking at the metrics and the design of a $100 billion indigenous economy using that economic lever. Um, lastly, the Institute is unleashing the 10 to watch list. So it will be a list of indigenous businesses, economic development corporations, joint partnerships, innovative business models that are all pointing to the features and characteristics of the new face of indigenous business. What Mm. is innovation? What does Um, positive relationships look like and new actions. So that new 10 to watch list will be unleashed at the Indigenomics Gala the end of June in Richmond as well. Nice. Now, if people are interested in wanting to know more, we might have perked some interest uh, and piqued some interest from some people listening. Where can they uh, reach out to you and and touch base or, or find out more? Uh, for sure. So the Indigenomics Institute uh, website is just uh, uh, .com as well as the Indigenomics events page. Um, and then social media on Twitter is the most common um, at the hashtag Indigenomics. And there's also an Indigenomics Facebook page. Mm, great. Now, something else that you, you touched on was investment and and. Um, you know, indigenous economic development funds are being developed, et cetera, um, uh, to tackle infrastructure deficits in indigenous communities. But there's also the the need, as as I believe you mentioned, that Canadian government needs to make investments uh, towards uh, and and looking equally uh, at uh, 
and indigenous people as in both a legal and economic relationship with Canada's indigenous peoples. Um, are you seeing, uh, are you talking with any government officials or are you seeing any movement in that regard? I think that the work of the National Aboriginal Capital Corporation is really bringing into visibility what that means and what the experience and what the metrics have been around the undercapitalization of the Indigenous economy. So the number of um, Aboriginal financial institutions have the uh, capital available has been capped for a considerable amount of time, mm. while the number of Indigenous businesses has been growing exponentially. So it really demonstrates that the growth of the Indigenous economy has been successful in spite of economic exclusion, in spite of the ability to implement implement Indigenous legal wins um, in spite of this concept of the undercapitalization of the indigenous economy, in spite of the Indian Act, all mm -hmm. of these kind of aspects, there still continues to be growth. And I think it becomes important to realize the work of these organizations and ways to engage with them in this leadership narrative around what does the capitalization of the indigenous economy look like and to engage from that leadership perspective. Mm. You know, you mentioned the Indian Act, and, and uh, I'm not sure how many people truly understand how the Indian Act had that negative impact on Indigenous people of, of not being able to, for instance, uh, uh, have collateral for, you know, if they wanted to start a business or wanting to do, to do things that, like, other people can do in, in putting up their, their home for a line of credit or those kind of things. Um, is, your, is your sense that, that, that there is a, a lack of, of information or understanding of that as well? Absolutely. And I think there's a series of national Aboriginal business focused organizations that are bringing that story into visibility. Um, another example is I just finished writing a book called Indigenomics by Design, a seat at the economic table, and that will be published in um, December 2019 Great. or January 2020. It looks and um, the concept is Indian Act economics and the mm. effect of that. And to begin to name that, even though there's like 603 nations within this country, mm -hmm. some of them today are defined as treaty nations. Some of them are modern day treaties. Yeah. Some are self governing. There's all these different yeah. um, facets of definition. And what becomes important is the realization that 603 of them have all been impacted by the Indian Act in some way, shape, or form, as well as Canadians are definitely impacted by that. So what is Indian Act economics? Why is it important to understand that? And what does the future of Canada look like with economic inclusion? Mm. That sounds wonderful. Congratulations on that. We look forward to uh, getting a copy and, and, and reading up on that. Great. Thank you. So um, once again, if anyone is, is interested in playing Indigenomics, as you pointed out, uh, they can get a hold of you at indigenomics.com. Uh, is that correct? Yes, indigenomicsinstitute.com. There you go. And you, as you mentioned, you've got a Twitter site and you've got other uh, social media handles that people can follow up on as well to find out more. Yes. Uh, Carol, it's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking your time to call in and, and uh, participate in our show. We really greatly appreciate that. And we certainly wish you all the best with uh, your, your future endeavors. And uh, we certainly hope that uh, 
that Indigenomics uh, has uh, has a, a role to play in developing and getting our Indigenous people on the path to economic uh, uh, prosperity. Well, thank you very much for having me today. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking with Carol Ann Hilton. She's the founder and CEO of the Indigenomics Institute. And you can find out more to, by going to the indigenomicsinstitute.com website. And as she mentioned, there's also a Twitter handle and uh, Facebook and things you can also follow up on to find out more. And look forward to uh, her book coming out, as she mentioned, later in December of this year or January of 2020. We're going to take a pause and we're going to come back with uh, our Ottawa office and uh, Carol O'Neill. Caroline O'Neill is going to be speaking with Scott Jones and he is the head of the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity. And I believe they're going to be talking a little bit about how that could impact the upcoming election, if I'm not mistaken. So looking forward very much to that uh, interview with Caroline O'Neill coming up from our Ottawa Bureau momentarily right after a break here at uh, at Element FM. And uh, I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth. Canadians are heading to the polls this fall, but in a climate of election tampering, understanding our cyber safety is critical. Scott Jones is the head of the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, joining us over the phone from Ottawa. Scott, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I wanted to start with is that the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity is fairly new. It launched last October. Can you talk to me about what led to the founding of the centre? Well, the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity is new, but the cybersecurity mission of the federal government isn't. So we're part of the communication security establishment, and we were established as part of Canada's renewed cybersecurity strategy. So really to address the things, the, the key things that we heard from Canadians or that the government heard from Canadians through um, over the last couple of years, and one was cyber is a critical piece of our economic prosperity. And so how do we start to deal with that? It's not about being fearful. It's about taking action and being proactive and securing yourself online. Uh, the second piece is dealing with cybercrime and making ourselves more resilient and tackling that. And the third one is skills. Um, every Canadian should, have, should be cyber savvy and have cyber skills. And so how do we start to tackle that? And that's part of what the, cyber secure, the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity is there to do. Was any of the previous elections that happened before 2018, like the 2016 U.S. and U.K. elections, did any of those have any impact on the founding of the centre or the decision to go ahead with it? Well, I think broadly what, what we really have seen is that cybersecurity has become a top-of-mind issue for almost every business. Uh, in fact, every business is probably their number one or number two major risk. But for each of us as Canadians, cybersecurity issues are impacting our day-to-day lives. And so the elections were part of it. Um, and some of the activity we saw. But in reality, this is really about how do we start to deal with the fact that cybersecurity is part of our everyday lives, um, the part of, part of every single thing that we have to do every day, and it's integrated into our society. And so the Cybersecurity Centre is there to help Canadians uh, deal with that fact. A lot of Canadians approach cybersecurity with different degrees of knowledge. So how does cybersecurity impact us in our day-to-day? Well, I think it, well, cybersecurity really impacts us um, in a few different ways. First of all, we make decisions every day to do things online. It's making our lives easier in a lot of cases to access services, critical information. And so every time we do that, are we accessing it in a way that's protecting our information? Are we making decisions where we're taking into account 
what should we be providing that information and are we providing to somebody who's trustworthy? And the fact is, unfortunately, there are, there are criminal actors out there who look to take advantage of that. How can they gain advantage? How can they gain, um, get, inform- get money from us, frankly? And so we, we put out a lot of information to try and help people um, make some good decisions through our Get Cyber Safe campaign, for example. Um, so when we, for example, last Black Friday, um, when everybody's off to go buy some fun electronics, uh, we put out a guide that said, here are the top five things we think people are going to buy, and here's some cybersecurity concerns. And um, so that's just a simple thing that everybody can look at, not to scare you, but to say, here's how you can do it good and do it properly. So what are some simple steps that Canadians can take to be a little more protective and proactive regarding their cybersecurity? So the first thing is really... um, the basics of cybersecurity are really important, and they're really boring, unfortunately. <laughs> so, p- patching your systems, um, meaning when that when that when on your on your mobile phone that little red circle comes up and says, you know, update your applications, please do that. That that makes a huge difference. Running the making sure that you're running the latest operating system, for example, that makes yourself that makes you more secure. Um, creating good passwords. Um, but the fact is, passwords are a nightmare. So using something like a password manager, um, but making a strong password for the things that matter to you. So for example, for me, my financial institution is one of the most important things for me. Um, that has a unique password. It's extremely strong, and I change it. Um, but I'm really not worried when, about the, when I sign up for recipes and you have to sign up with a username and password. Um, yeah, I'm interested in recipes, but that's okay. Uh, it's my banking that, to me, will change my life. The fact that I'm interested in, uh, in Tex-Mex cooking is not something that changes, uh, changes my cybersecurity standing. So just making decision, basic decisions like that makes a huge difference. One of the things that the Centre touches on is the idea of cyber hygiene. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and why we need to take steps to maintain it? Well, cyber hygiene really is about those, those steps that you need to take to make yourself more secure. So patching is one of those, um, making sure that you're setting good passwords, thinking about security as you're making purchases. Um, just the basic, basic steps on, on cyber hygiene, it makes a huge amount of difference. So, for example, in uh, 2014, every single compromise that the government of Canada faced would have been avoided if we had patched our systems. Um, there, you did not need to be a sophisticated actor to compromise um, our systems. We've, we've worked on that, and that's something, and it's not exciting, but it, it is effective. And so cyber hygiene is really just doing the basics, taking care of the basics, making it easy, setting your system to auto-update, for example. Um, apply those patches at night when it's charging. Um, then you're, you're protected the next day. Uninstalling the apps that you don't use um, just eliminates yet another point that somebody could compromise your system. That's a simple measure. Um, and then, again, making sure that you're setting good passwords for the things that matter to you. And in regards to some of that protection and security, there is two-factor authentication. Can you explain a little bit what that is and why people might want to consider integrating that into their own cyber hygiene? That's, a, that's an excellent point. And two-factor is really the next step, two-factor authentication. So this is really where, so you know something about, you have your password, you know that. And then typically a second factor is something else. So it could be a text message that gives you a unique code when you're logging in. And that way, if somebody's trying and they get your password, but they're trying to log in to say your email, well, they need this code that only comes to your phone, or it only comes to, or there's another another factor. So it could be a kind of a, a device that generates a unique code. But really, it's something to say: this password is good. My username and password is important. 
But then there's this other thing that is harder for them to get. It makes it's just another barrier for them to compromise your accounts. And so really it's a it's a second it's just a second way of confirming you are who you are. So I, I use those pretty extensively where I can, um, where the system enables me to do that. And that way it prevents somebody from, say, for example, hijacking our social media accounts, our email accounts, etc. Um, it's just a good, it's a good practice to make it just that much harder for uh, somebody who's out to get us um, to, do, to take a bad action. Let's go back to election talk for a little bit. Um, your 2019 updates, Cyber Threats to Canada's Democratic Process, says that nearly half of all advanced democracies in 2018 experienced some sort of attempt at interference. Did you notice any new approaches in regards to high-profile elections like the 2018 midterms we saw in November? Well, we, that's, that's one of the um, key things that we always see. Um, these, these activities and cyber activities in the context of an election, they always evolve. Um, it's a, it's a low-cost ability to influence. Um, and so one of the things we highlighted in, um, from the report that we issued in 2017 to 2019 is we see voters as the most likely to be targeted. Um, so you'll see a lot more information that looks, it's a lot less extreme. Um, so there's a, it's a lot more subtle in terms of how it's approaching people. You'll see it building up over time. Um, and so these counts take a while to establish, so the, the information could be factual for a while building up, and then all of a sudden the day before the election it comes out and said, don't forget, um, if your name is, starts with a J to a Z, vote tomorrow, when today was the day to vote. And so you'll see them, you'll see them just introducing very subtle differences. That's one of the examples that we've seen in, cha- in terms of changes. Um, that it's not so blatant. It's not the kind of extreme views that many of us would just discount automatically. It's something that is plausible. Um, and then you also, you also see the, 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 um, the beginning of things that are called deep fakes, where because of the advancement of technology, you can start to fake um, videos or clips, etc., that start to look very real. And so it's just the evolving technology and how things are done. So we have to look with critical eye. And while those are scary examples, the thing I always say is turn to traditional media for, for sourcing. Um, look to journalists who do their homework, who do double sourcing of things. Um, Twitter is not a journalistic source. It's a, it's a marketing tool. Um, I turn to trusted sources and journalism, and it's important. Can you give me an example of some of the trusted sources that you personally tend to go to? Um, I tend to consume a wide range of Canadian media. I, I tend to look to Canadian media, and I, and I actually look in both languages because you do tend to see things that are interesting, um, that are more interesting in the Quebec side than they are in, say, um, other parts of Canada and vice versa. Um, but I look, I look around the mainstream side of things, but then also um, to some of the smaller outlets that are more regional, depending on the topic. So I'm from Saskatchewan. I turn to some of my local uh, sources to hear what's going on, uh, not just because I want to hear about the Rough Riders. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, but uh, but really, it's the mainstream the mainstream um, um, either traditional newspaper side of things or online or TV or um, radio that I just I just I tend to consume a bunch of different sources. Scott, you mentioned these deep fakes, and you gave that really great example of a video that has been edited in a, in a way that it seems real. And part of the problem with those videos is that they are created to spark an emotional reaction. And when people have reactions like that, sometimes they're not thinking to be critical. So if a video like that pops up and it does spark an emotional reaction in somebody, what can they kind of do to look at it at the time to see if it is real or if it is not? Well, you're right. The videos are, the videos are hard because we've always been taught a picture's worth a thousand words and, um, and that an image like that is real. And so 
where we're to the point where can you trust anything? And I think one of the key things is, is saying, is that really in character? So if the video has been edited to speed up a piece of it or something like that, is it real? Um, where's it coming from? And before we retweet, before we repost, before we like these things, maybe do a quick check. Um, was the person in the video even there? Um, or look to see, is this, um, is this being promoted? Why am I seeing this right now? And I think it, it's, it's just something that we're going to have to be very critical of when we see these videos and say, well, I'm not sure if it's true or not, and look to the source. And this is where, again, I turn to traditional media where really it's about multiple sources. Was somebody there? Did somebody actually see this? Um, and, and it's hard for an individual to do that, but that's why relying on the media and multiple media sources is important. Um, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to speak with a lot of journalists about this, and they, they take it very seriously in terms of double sourcing, multiple multi-sourcing of things. Um, and that's, and that's, why, that's why I'm saying traditional media. I know that might not be popular with everybody, but it, to me, that's one, of the, that's one of the best defenses because we just don't have, I don't have the personal resources to be able to go and confirm everything I read. So you've stressed the importance of traditional media, but you mentioned that that's not really the popular route, especially with social media. For people who are using social media platforms as perhaps their predominant way to get information, how can they use social media safely and critically? Well, it's a challenge because um, we, we, I think as, as citizens and as users of social media, we forget that it was not designed to be an information, a neutral information dissemination tool. Um, social media really is designed to market to us in terms of pushing information, getting us to click, to build up profiles. Uh, we don't see things because they're neutral. We see things because they're reinforcing a predisposition for us. So if we keep clicking on things that are on a certain point of view, you're going to see more like that and less of the opposite point of view or the neutral point of view. And so I think one of the things that we need to be aware of is that social media is really designed to shape us in a certain direction because it's designed as a marketing tool. It's designed to push us towards certain things. So is it, and that works when you're looking at buying what soda do I want to buy? Or what, um, but it doesn't necessarily work when you're looking at what's really going on in the world. We tend to get a very skewed view of the world depending on who we follow, what we like, and what we retweet or repost. Do you think it helps for people to try and break their own echo chambers, so to speak? You know, you mentioned that it's very easy for people to be targeted through ads, but it's also easy for a user to build a comfortable bubble, so to speak, and to build something that really reinforces their own beliefs and perspectives. Well, you're absolutely right about the echo chamber, and I think that's the, it's hard to break out of that. Um, and sometimes it's, do you have other people in your circle? And if you started, to, one of the things, um, I know I've seen this with some of my friends, we start to talk about this and we've realized um, people have started to ostracize their friends that are on the other points of view, and we, we, we talk about this. And I think it's really um, having the conversations, discussing these openly and saying, you know, do we really think that this, is a, that this is the point of view or is there an opposite point of view that's missing? Going and arguing online is almost never going to work. Um, you just attract the trolls to come back and attack. Um, by talking to your friends and saying, you know, is this really the point of view and using the real personal relationships that are out there. Um, and I realize it's kind of funny for the cyber guy to say, talk to people in person. <laughs> um, but, but the fact is, is that matters. The relationship piece still matters here. And I think that's going to be part of combating this, uh, this echo chamber effect that you've, that you've really importantly highlighted. You also talked about the critical role that journalists in mainstream news play in helping to prevent the spread of disinformation, but obviously journalists and media sources are not perfect. 
What do you suggest that media practitioners do to stay on top of things and to remain as trustworthy as possible for the people who turn to them? Well, I think... um I think it's a huge challenge, and I don't, I don't envy you and your, your colleagues in this, in this field. It's really um, because one of the things is it is a race to get out there first, um, to be the one that is the leader on these things. So how to build in the time um, and the acceptance to do that double multiple sourcing and to figure these things out, to follow through on it. Um, because you're right, credibility takes a lot of time to earn. And it, it can very quickly be dissipated and disappear. Uh, but I think really just explaining explaining the fact, all the diligence that's done. There's there's a, Canadians I feel are very smart. Um, they'll listen and they'll understand that it that it takes time to do these things if we give them the information. And that's really what we've been trying to do by putting out the reports is giving Canadians the information so they can make their own decisions. Um, that doesn't mean they have to agree to a certain point of view, but. If we're listening and we're open to the different ideas, and I think the same thing goes for journalists saying, you know, we spend time doing this. The reason why this story went up, let me explain to you the background, maybe how the effort you go to putting together a story. That might actually be an interesting story in itself. Um, how much work you do and all the diligence you do in some of these in-depth reports. Um, because it isn't a 20-minute 20, a 20 interview is not 20 minutes of work. That is a great um, story idea. I might follow that for later, Scott. <laughs> um, we've had some high-profile provincial elections and as well some recent by-elections. Do you have any reason to believe that there had been any interference in any of the recent elections that we've seen here in Canada? Well, our, our mandate um, with the Cyber Centre, our mandate really is about awareness and helping people to be more conscious of their online activity. Um, and then with CSE's broader foreign intelligence mandate to really look at what's happening from the foreign side. Uh, we, don't, we don't look necessarily inside of Canada. Um, that's up to our colleagues in other places. Uh, but right now, one of the things we've said is this is why we put out the information. It's so that people can be aware. They were likely to, uh, we're, we're very likely to see this activity um, take place in the context of the federal election. In terms of provincial elections, um, I wouldn't be surprised, but it could also be traditional campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where Canadians looking at things with a, with a um, critical eye is really critical, was really important. You know, it's not just the voters who are targets, it's also staffers and candidates and politicians who can be the target. And when they're targeted, that is some really sensitive documents and information that could be made very vulnerable. And I think for your average Canadian, it's a little scary because that's something we don't control. What do Canadians need to know about the work that's being done to prepare politicians for this? Well, we've we've briefed every um, major registered political party, so all 16, I think, uh, registered political parties in Canada. Uh, we've given them cybersecurity briefings. Um, we, we've, we actually have regular calls in terms of sharing of information over and above our regular um, kind of information feed in terms of protection. And then I think the fact is, though, um, there's a reputational um, incentive to protect our private information that every organization has. And so um, whether they're – I'm not scoring – uh, a political party on on are they good or bad in terms of uh, in terms of um, cybersecurity protection, but there is incentive to take this to take this seriously and to make investments and take action to protect themselves, and I think that bodes well for all of us as well in terms of the information that's being protected. Um, and you know, one of the things that I've been asking candidates as they're coming to the door is how they're protecting the information they're gathering, um, and and they a lot of them have really good answers. And so I've been pretty happy with that. Um, that's maybe something, uh, it's a good, good point to engage with, uh, with the people who are going to represent us on their feelings on this and um, 
protection, and certainly I've been doing it personally uh, as a Canadian, but it's something that I think it's something that's not a necessarily a issue for a particular point on the political spectrum, but really something that affects us all. But you point out many um, politicians and candidates will be docking, knocking on doors if they're not already, so for Canadians that is an issue they could certainly bring up. Absolutely. So Scott, flash forward to October, we're in the midst of the federal election. What would be the ideal situation for you? The ideal situation is that um, I'm able to, we're able to stay very quiet as CSE. Um, we have an election that goes smoothly where candidates have been able to express their views. Uh, Canadians hear their vo- have their voices heard in the election and um, we, um, we, uh, we react to the reaction by standing up uh, whatever government Canadians choose and um, I have nothing of interest to report whatsoever. That's the ideal situation for us. That sounds pretty great. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat, Scott. Thank you very much. Scott Jones is the head of the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity. And thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, miigwech, and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.